Here we are on the War on the Rocks podcast series, and tonight we'll be talking about uh, cyber war. We have Peter W. Singer of the Brookings Institute, or institution, we were just having that discussion, um, institution, uh, Alan Friedman, also Brookings, and we have Max Fisher here from the Washington Post here to talk about their new book and the issues that it raises, Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know, uh, just came out with Oxford University Press. It's really actually been entertaining to read. Um, I'm not a big... Uh, cyber is not my specialty by any stretch of the imagination. I've always been sort of intimidated by the subject. But um, the book really not only was easy to read, but what really hit home for me is how when you're reading about cyber, it's sort of like reading about energy. When you're studying energy, you're studying the politics of everything and how everything works in terms of trade, geopolitics, um, and finance and economics. And it's sort of the same with cyber. Cyber now pervades everything, almost every human activity that we're doing now. And that's sort of what I found, one of the many things I found interesting on the book. Um, what, what, Peter, you've written quite a few books. What made you approach cyber as your next topic? The idea of it, you, you, you hit it exactly. The books that I've done in the past have been ones that have tried to make people pay attention to something new. So whether it was the rise of private military companies to the emergence of warlord and child soldier groups to the last book on drones it was usually about something here's something new that you don't yet think is a big deal it's going to be a big deal cyber isn't actually the sort of opposite side of that coin it's we all know it matters but it's really not well understood and um that's particularly the case in politics and business and media um, definitely in the military and so the idea behind the book was to uh, very much give a resource uh, for for us all the, the, the title what everyone needs to know the emphasis is on the everyone everyone doesn't need to know how to computer program but they do need to understand some of the key issues that, that we have going here and so for me it was fun to um, jump into this world learn more about it but also we hope that it'll fill a gap that's in the market and a gap that's in the policy side as well, and with that, hopefully, sell some books too. Yeah, and Alan, you're a, you're a technologist, and this is your first book. Um, could you talk a little bit about the perspective that you brought to the project? Uh, so I've been doing information for security for a while. In fact, I spent a portion of my uh, uh, time before Brookings basically making fun of people who use the word cybersecurity uh, because we had computer security, we had crypto. Uh, and there was a uh, front, uh, economist article that had a digital mushroom cloud in front of a city, yeah. uh, and and I actually uh, got some some students to go through and code each sentence to show that they just sort of leapt from uh, war between industrialized countries to credit card fraud in the same paragraph, and <laughs> this was an issue that we were just conflating a lot of things, uh, and so. You know, my audience has always been the technologists, but it was really evident that we needed to address this. When Peter approached me uh, and said, "Listen, this is an important issue. We, we should work on this together," I was I was really excited uh, because it the challenge is not just to separate the issues, but to communicate them effectively and convincingly, as well as sort of offer some suggestions. And, and you know, it's a hard space to say that definitively we must do this. The real risk is to avoid. The, the, the what I call the the Sir Humphrey uh, syllogism from uh, you've already really, complicated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's a famous there's no Sir we Humphreys must, in the we world. must we <laughs> must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. And the problem is in cybersecurity, we are really rushing towards that space, and so we need to sort of understand the issues more. Well, one of the other things to add on this, and, and this is what connects the the book to the policy debate right now to our own individual roles online is that to put it bluntly our ignorance is being taken advantage of it's being taken advantage of uh in terms of the hacker who um convinces you to click on that link when you shouldn't uh, but it's also it being taken advantage of on the business level in terms of companies dealing with some cyber security firm that comes to them and says, you know, I've got the super secret sauce to sell all, solve all your problems. Uh, you know, look, 70% of business executives have made a cyber security decision, not 
70% of CTOs or CSOs of execs in general, and yet no major MBA program teaches on it. And then you have this definitely going on in the debate in um, national security today, both on the military side and the NSA, where, um, look, there's been some threats that are hyped and um, organizations basically coming and saying, but don't worry, uh, you may not understand this, but I'm the man on horseback to solve it all for you. Or give me a lot of budget funding and we'll take care of this big um, cyber boogeyman that's out there. And the reality is there's very real, very real threats, but there's also um, a sense that if we understood it, we could manage it a lot more effectively. Another way of putting it is that uh, too much of the discussion on this topic has either been really technical and dry and boring, uh, as, as one White House guy put it to me a couple of days ago, this used to be a topic only for the nerds. And in the opposite side, there's been a lot of histrionics out there. You know, if this was Spinal Tap, turning the volume up to 11. And um, that's, you know, not the way to, to deal with this right now. Whether you're, again, in the military and politics and business, or you're just, you know, a parent trying to keep your, your kids safe online, we all got to get a lot smarter on this. Well, so what, what parts of it are not overhyped? And the reason I ask is because, um, you know, I work at a major media institution, which means that the Chinese government has been up on our servers and like... Hey, us too. <laughs> what do you We're know? actually part of the same social network, <laughs> right. and we didn't know it. I feel kind of bad that I haven't been hacked by the Chinese yet. Well, I'm the only one in the room. It's kind of yeah. that's the the same thing with the NSA. You know, if you haven't been targeted, yeah. <laughs> you kind of feel bad. Right. But I mean, isn't that that seemed pretty substantial to us? And isn't so? You're saying it is substantial that a foreign power would be interested in knowing more about what their leaders are learning. That so it's, so no so I agree with you that it's it's an extension of a long practice of espionage right and I think you're right that when people conflate it with right, there is gambling, when people right. conflate it with war and with interstate conflict that's crazy and I think it makes to me it makes more sense as an extension of espionage but it's a pretty significant extension right I mean the degree of intrusion into you know, obviously I'm sensitive to the intrusion into media organizations, but into lots of organizations seems kind of unprecedented. Absolutely. And the, and the, the scale of this by one measure um, truly carries the, the importance of it. And, and you know, look, um, what you, what, what the media uh, was targeted for was essentially kind of information on what was being reported. The, the bigger concern to me when we're talking about um, China, and look, you know, uh, China appears as much in the book as cats do. And that's because you can't tell the story of the <laughs> internet without talking about both cats and China today. Um, and what worries me is, is the scale of the intellectual property theft. Uh, whether you are a major defense company or you are a um, oil company or you are a small furniture maker, all those uh, types of firms have been targeted. And, um, you know, another way of putting it is uh, we need to understand and differentiate between the kind of attacks attacks the kind of activities that are going on there so you know as Alan was getting at we've we've lumped together all of these unlike things whether it's yeah. credit card fraud sure. you know Nigerian prince scams that's a scam? state level <laughs> yeah oh, any day he's gonna come through for you, you know, <laughs> state level intellectual property you know maybe the largest theft in all of human history by yeah. one measure yeah. but also cyber terrorism but also computer network operations on the military side. We bundled them all together simply because they all use zeros and ones. And, you know, and, then, you, and then we also get people talking about very unlike uh, actors as the same thing. You know, so I've seen senior defense officials um, in the same sentence talk about what China's doing, what Anonymous is doing, and Al-Qaeda as all the same thing. In fact, um, one of these guys argued with me as to whether Anonymous and Al-Qaeda were the same organization. <laughs> just, you know, you, wow. Yeah, and you, so there's no way you can operate effectively if you've got that kind of thinking. And you know, again, we're not saying there aren't real things going on there. And we've been targeted too, um, but we need to better understand them. And to go back to what Ryan was leading, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, it means you can tell very different stories and characters and lead in, whether it's from what's happening today or 
from historic parallels. Yeah. What what I found uh, one of the one of the interesting things was this is peppered throughout the book. We, we did a lot of interviews with officials from a lot of different countries uh, for this book, and uh, you find a lot of things. It's situations where these high-level officials involved in negotiations or regulation or just dealing with the cyber portfolio do not know about certain key concepts that they absolutely should have. And you write that this, you write in the way you wrote in the book is that this naivete is beginning to have a dangerous impact on the global order. What was the worst example? And you don't need to name names, just someone that should have known X and didn't. Um, I think it was, uh, there was a very senior former administration official uh, who uh, was running, uh, was focused on, on cybersecurity, uh, clicked something on Twitter that should not have been clicked. <laughs> and uh, this spread throughout uh, a large portion of the Washington uh, press corps as well because uh, everyone got the private tweet from this person. Um, yeah, my, my favorite one was um, a uh, top U.S. official that, that um, was entering into negotiations with uh, the Chinese and uh, asked us what an ISP was, <laughs> which the parallel to me is a lot like um, going into a meeting with the Soviets and asking what an ICBM was. Um, and yet, you know, I can't actually fault him because in an interesting way, and it illustrates this gap here, my mom, who's, you know, she's a nurse, she's not in politics, my mom doesn't know what an ISP is, but she does know what an intercontinental ballistic missile was. Even though an ISP is far more important to her daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and the same, you know, should be for this official. So, you know, to me it was a good illustration of how can you even, uh, you know, properly negotiate on this if uh, your own side doesn't know what we're talking about, let alone the other. And then you have the, the added layer to it, the whole idea of running negotiations on this 21st century uh, matter through you know the 19th century model of uh, statecraft you know leaves some gaps I mean if could you think of two organizations that have less power on not just the internet but what their own nations are doing in cyberspace than the US State Department and the Chinese Foreign Ministry <laughs> neither one has any sway and yet that's you know the idea that we would solve the problems at that level is 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 a good example of kind of the gaps of where we've got to go in, in governance it's so interesting to me how it's become this kind of not exactly level playing field but a playing field where you've got states and corporations and individual actors and kids in their basement kind of all on the same I don't know not battlefield but whatever you want to call it. And it's even more complicated because these states are completely dependent on corporations for right. providing us. And this isn't just the classic model of, well, we have to buy the jets from someone. Uh, it's a question of the entire infrastructure and the, the pathways to innovation come from the private sector. And so towards the end of the book, when we start under, unpacking what governments can do, uh, any situation must ultimately come from the market environment. Uh, but the challenges is how can the government encourage and foster that? And one of the other aspects of it um, may help pop, uh, I would argue, one of the, the mythologies that's out there, particularly on the, the military uh, side and the discussion on this, and that the actors as you lay out, it reflects the, the very structure of the Internet, the origin of the Internet itself as being multi-stakeholder that it's this space that everyone from big states to uh, non-state organizations to corporations and individuals are all playing in it. That said, though, there's this narrative that's out there. Um, you know, uh, a couple of teenagers sipping Red Bull in their parents' basement could conduct a devastating cyber attack like Stuxnet. No, actually they couldn't. Um, and that, in fact, the to pull off a campaign and to build a, a sophisticated cyber weapon like Stuxnet, guess what, being strong, being a big state, still comes with a lot of huge advantages. Um, but and what's the advantage there? Is it money? Is it, it resources? It's, it's all of those. I mean, you know, and we, we, we look into the Stuxnet operation and, you know, it involved everything from 
intelligence gathering so that you knew the specific make of the uh, equipment that they were using in this one research facility to then you had an organization that brought together some of the top technical talent from the United States and oh by the way Israel they were also to the market side going out there buying certain tools and capabilities and they had to build a model, re right. a model uh, right. set of centimeters That reminded me of part of the the story. It reminded me of how the SEAL Team Six planned the Bin Laden raid by building a replica. It's yep. sort of like the same sort of thing. <laughs> but, but beyond that, you know, and then and then, and then, then to deploy it. They then had to have the other side of espionage and not gathering, but basically covert entry. So essentially you're talking about something that involved not just masses of people and a huge amount of money, but it involved skill sets that ranged from you know, your, your classic intelligence analyst, your cyber specialist, your nuclear physicist, your engineers who understood the system, and then James Bond style to infiltrate it back. You know, this is not what a couple of kids could pull off. Yeah. So, you know, too often we, we, we have this narrative out there that um, anyone can do it and the offense is, is, is at an inherent advantage, and that's why we have to preemptively strike and all this. And you're like, no, actually, you know, guess what? This is still a, a space that some of the old power is still relevant. And oh, by the way, you know, by being a power with uh, traditional capabilities, you can also always take the conversation outside. You know, so you do something yeah. to me in cyber, I don't necessarily <laughs> have to react that way. And it's just a, it's but a good. Does that happen? Well, because um, so uh, this is, the United States got a lot of flack when they announced in their new strategy uh, two years ago that they would consider a non-cyber retaliation. For an attack that occurred in cyberspace, but only one that caused real-world damage. Well, but but right? no, I think they they said we will we won't take it off the table. Which of course you wouldn't. Uh, in fact, we know exactly what a JDAM does. We spent a lot of money studying. Did you tell our listeners just? It's a very big. <laughs> <laughs> we spent a lot of money understanding exactly what every munition we have does uh, for a variety of reasons to make sure it doesn't hurt our own troops, to make sure we and, and lawyers are there. To make sure that these things they're always execute, there. they are there to, to that they execute properly. Um, one of the things about a cyber operation, because you have these systems that are interconnected, the same thing that allows us to worry that oh, if you take down this one system, all the other systems may go down, also means, by the way, if you take down this one system strategically, you may end up doing a lot more external damage. So uh, you know, given the option. We may say, why on earth would we do a cyber op? Do a cyber op when we know how to do it in the physical world much more efficiently? It's actually interesting to look at the cases of um, when we've chosen not to deploy that capability, and uh, essentially there's there's two recent ones, and they, they illustrate the the different reasons for why you why we we didn't. So one was um, in Iraq where uh, we had the capability to go after, there was discussion inside the government, particularly going after assets of um, uh, regime officials. And they- Just by hacking their bank accounts or? Yep. Okay. So, and they the decided bank, the bank against it. Systems, yeah. yeah, they mm -hmm. decided against it. Um, essentially for, for two reasons. One was, you know, was this the time to, to deploy that precedent? But more importantly was the worry of what the ripple effect would have on the broader financial system. Um, on us. Uh, the other one that's interesting is um, the Libya campaign, um, where we could have done uh, essentially what we in the book we talk about Operation Orchard, how the the Israelis, uh, it, you know, the real key for this in the military side is integrating it with your other operations. That's the difference between having a tank circle World War One and having the Blitzkrieg by World War II. And the Israelis pulled this off of you know integrating to take down Syrian air defenses. And we could have done something quite similar in Libya, but we didn't have to. Um, and you know, the way, my joke about it is you don't deploy your trick play in the um, game against Middle Eastern State University <laughs> when you've got the bowl game uh, looming yeah. out west. Right. That is, to take down a Russian Chinese uh, design air defense system. There's some things you could do in cyber, but we've chosen so far not to for those reasons. Well, this is why I find the leaks surrounding Stuxnet so interesting and how this got out there and perhaps shouldn't have. 
Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. Well, well the, one of the quotes that we have in the book is... And you, um, Matt, as a member of the media, you too, Max, sorry. You know, <laughs> is, is, is telling in retrospect, which um, was a public quote by uh, Cartwright, um, basically talking about deterrence value in general of cyber weapons. And he says it's uh, you know, of no value if you aren't talking about it. Um, that public quote now uh, reads differently um, in, in this context today. And I don't think people in the media have made that connection between the two. Um, but yeah, Stuxnet, there's a, the, the leaks around it, um, you know, you have the question of, you know, what did we gain by leaking? And um, uh, was it the deterrence value? Was it um, how it fit within domestic politics inside the United States at With the time. With negotiations and, right, and also, frankly, to, to the election, the U.S. election right. and to look tough. Um, but, you know, a big concern of it is by talking about it, um, we, uh, you know, there was a general knowledge that we had done it by talking about it. We validated it in a way that, um, one, may have helped undercut some of the norms that we were trying to build where we go, Oh no, 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 this wasn't an offensive use of cyber. This was an espionage operation. Well, that's how we interpret it under our law, but that's not how the rest of the world looks at it. The other is that, um, it had this, uh, interesting knock on effect of, um, it's not just a great time to be working on cybersecurity inside the United States. Post that announcement, it became a really great time to work on it in Tehran. Um, the Iranian <laughs> regime plowed a huge amount of money. Uh, two different universities started cyber weapons programs, mm. Quds Force, etc. So you know, a cyber arms race, so to speak. Well, not so. It's I mean, a dramatic term, yeah. but yeah, but it, but it definitely um, it, it accelerated something that uh, we may not have. Um, we again, we may not have full, fully recognized some of the ramifications of it. Correct. Sorry. Well, I mean, I can't, you know, read the minds of anybody in the administration to know what they were thinking, but it would certainly fit within the rest of their Iran policy to try to take as much credit as possible for any kind of offensive stance, sanctions, the threat of airstrikes, which maybe he means, maybe he doesn't, you know, Netanyahu's crazy, we can't control him. I mean, it really, they're trying to set this narrative of, Guys, any day now, if you don't come around, you know, anything could happen to you. So, you know, maybe it wasn't that deliberate and didn't fit in that well with strategy when they leaked it, but I think they've tried to turn it that way. The, the other part of it that's interesting, and it um, connects to discussions of, um, you know, again, in other realms that we really haven't explored deeply in our community, uh, which we tried to do a little bit in the book, is to proliferation. And uh, what does that mean when you're talking about cyber weapon? Because Stuxnet was, it was really the first cyber weapon. It was the first um, weapon in terms of the idea of uh, creating a physical effect on the world via digital means. Um, but so the proliferation story, that, that there's two ways. One is, at least according to what's been leaked, um, it was built in cooperation with uh, Israeli intelligence. And then we got stunned when certain elements of Stuxnet, some of the design elements of it, then popped up in other things in ways that we weren't happy about. You know, we sh this, is, this is a kind of proliferation. The other more interesting proliferation is the idea of what, while a cyber weapon in one way is sort of like every weapon in history and and, and the idea of, you know, whether it was someone picking up a stone or Stuxnet um, causing uh, damage to the centrifuges, it caused physical damage in the world. But what's different is that it's, it, it was digital. It was, it was both there, everywhere, and nowhere. And um, it also meant that it came with its own design elements. That is, it, it sort of was a weapon that carries its own blueprint with it. Um, and, it, and it wasn't the idea that you could, you know, instantly make Stuxnet and use it against someone else, but it, it provided design inspiration right. to a lot of other people in the world. Sort of so like uh, the enemy capturing your artillery piece. So, so, so there's that, but at the same time, and, and both of these things are true at the same time. On one hand, when you release uh, a, a cyber weapon, one perspective is anyone who is smart, who has the resources, can capture it and throw it back at you. On the other hand, uh, it can also be seen as a one-shot weapon, right. uh, because once people sort of see what the targeted vulnerabilities are, 
they can patch them. Now, of course, both of those can be true because cyber weapons are complex. It is not just you find one hole and you throw it. There are many different components. Uh, and I don't want to spend the whole evening talking about Stuxnet, but the, the interesting thing about Stuxnet from a, a security perspective, or one, that we found out about it. Uh, that was a failure of design that, uh, you know, at How no so, point... Could they have designed it in a different way? Well, so, so, so the, one of the challenges uh, in a cyber weapon is getting it onto the system you're trying to target. Uh, and, and this uh, spread through a, multiple, uh, a number of different mechanisms, but they were, it was designed to be localized, right? You, you get it near the computer, and you start infecting everything around it, uh, but you also try to limit its spread, which limits its detection. Uh, why was it on a computer found in Central Europe that a computer researcher named Ralph Langer just happened to be looking at? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a failure. That's the guy that wrote the FP foreign policy piece, or is that something different? Yeah, Ralph. Ralph is actually um, works in our our center at, at Brookings, uh, and uh, he's a he's an industrial control systems researcher. And essentially, yeah, the the, the, the so I'm just ordering my next drink. Oh, Bushmills. <laughs> yeah, for, for kids. They're at they're at the Jameson. Do you guys? Oh, want to you're, you're, you're equal. You're equal. So I'm from Boston. I know. Never meet a, anyone who orders both versus us. Catholic thing. In but Ireland, they don't care. But it's Boston, about the same. It's really about the same company. Course, now, it's all it is. Anyone else want another drink? No, good. Alright, just me. Oh, sorry, Vaughn. But, but, but the, well, the, the official story here from the, the administration pushes, and who knows, is that the Israelis changed it, right? Is that they agreed on the design and the Israelis made some modification that it sent it spiraling out of control. Do you guys buy that? Well, now we're really getting in the weeds because it is, <laughs> is that there's. I don't want to push you into There's Stuxnet itself, and then there's the. the um, Flame. Well, then you're, oh, there's, there's, there's a whole oh, series yes, yes, of them, yeah, yeah. and so it's kind of conflating that. But but Alan's point was um, kind of more broadly the idea that you know you can imagine the way this is the seductive value of of, of, of cyber weapons. You can imagine you know and, and and almost a part of the ethical debate around yeah. them. You say, look, I've invented this weapon that can only harm the intended target. It can't cause harm to anything else in the world, and it'll only it'll only be there. And you go, oh my God, this is this is the solution to all our problems. On the other hand, Stuxnet turned out to be incredibly promiscuous, so to right. speak, and that um, yes, it could only harm that one particular set of centrifuges, but it popped up in computers that were you know everywhere from India to Central Europe to the like. And um, that not only meant that by another measure, you know, this was crossing lots of borders and interacting in ways that, you know, maybe uh, are questionable, but it also meant that a lot of other people could study it and sort of piece together what it was. And that's what Ralph Longer did, is he's basically a guy who finally figured out he didn't build Stuxnet. He's the guy who had the aha moment of, hold it, this thing that, you know, some people thought was going after the Iranian the Indian space program, other people thought it was, you know, a, a fun virus, it's actually going after these centrifuges and nantas, and here's how I understand it. So this is something that's really interesting to me about cyber conflict, cyber warfare, is Ryan and I were talking earlier about nuclear policy in the 60s and how it... We just recorded a nuclear podcast last night. Yeah. yeah. Not me. Um, and how it's become really regulated, both formally, and then there are all these informal norms, and it seems like that hasn't really developed with cybersecurity yet. And it's, it's especially when you look at not just Stuxnet, but then the U.S. relationship with China, where there's so much hacking in both directions. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me, how is that going to develop in terms of norms, or is there going to be a legal structure? Do we just kind of like set these informal rules? Or does that ever happen? Well, I think that's part of the problem today and it's you know, I'm not a fan of the the Cold War parallels that are used out there and that you know you'll see leaders say you know, cyber weapons are just like a WMD um, but the Cold War parallel that does hold is this notion of the early periods of the Cold War mm -hmm. where you hadn't yet set the norms you hadn't yet set the rules of the game um, even and that's in terms of the cross-national relations, but even more worrisome was the debates that were happening inside countries. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is the period that Dr. Strangelove 
you know, was taken seriously. I mean, this is the period we talk about in the book where the Air Force actually developed a plan to launch a nuclear missile at the moon to show the Russians that we could do interesting stuff in space too. This was an actual plan. I mean, that would have been super cool. It would have been really cool <laughs> right until you know yeah. the green cheese comes back at us. Um, but uh, the um, so the result is that uh, we don't have these structures built yet, and, and that's where it gets uh, interesting in terms of you know you mentioned China, but also how we deal with different nations. Um, I've talked with. Uh, folks on the, on the government side, and it's funny, they say, you know, look, you've got different actors out there. Um, China, you know, there's, there, there's the problem of, you know, developing the relationship and also what they're doing is, you know, mostly this just massive scale of industrial espionage. On the other hand, the Russians, they're kind of playing by the, in, in a lot of ways, um, it's easier, they describe, because much of what they do is, you know, classic espionage. And when they sit down to negotiate, all the guys know each other. Hmm. And you could see this how, you know, we created the, the, what did we do? We basically, one of the things is we took the, 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 the nuclear phone and we said, hey, why don't we use this for cyber too? Now, that doesn't mean that actually solves the problem, but it's just a, it's a, it's an illustration of, you, you know, how you built the, the norms and the ways of communicating that, that um, can carry over and help, and how you probably need them in, with other nations. Could you just, yeah, just uh, sorry, just to jump on that? I'm, I'm not an IR guy, but I think there there are two really important distinctions that really need to force us to break away from the Cold War analogy. One is the Cold War was a dyadic relationship, right? It was us versus them, right. and from a game theory perspective, that's just much much easier than because having other players allows all of us to sort of go and appeal to whenever we don't like what's going on, we can just say, oh, well, let's go talk and see what the Europeans are saying. Let's bring them in, and that'll disrupt things. Uh, the other component is the nuclear side had such primacy in U.S. USSR relationships, mm -hmm. whereas right now, whether it's Russia or China or even terrorism, there are so many other things that we see are as important or that you have other stakeholders who are trying to push on the agenda that this really has to fit in a broader portfolio. And it also melds into all of oh, these. Because you yep. can't have a discussion about trade today without cyber and internet and issues IP coming issues. up. Or right. terrorism, oh, by the way, it morphs into cyber or surveillance. Right. I mean, you name the issue, it crosses over. And that's because, you know, it's the illustration of the importance of this topic, but the new challenge of it. The other thing that's, that, that, that's here... Um, of this this flaw of uh, Cold War thinking is this idea that's held of you know I can just apply over deterrence theory um, and that's that that idea of the dyadic but also the you know in terms of um, you know it's clearly a di when, when a missile is coming at you uh, attribution is is quite right. easy and right. the threat is quite easy this is you know both attributions of what and you also have all these other actors out there. And that's, you know, this is important in a lot of different ways. It's important in terms of policy. Um, one of my concerns is the assumption that the offense will be dominant in the words of a Pentagon report for the foreseeable future in this space. First, historically, we've seen um, that, that kind of thinking sets us up for a fall, like it did prior to World War One. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, as we were talking about before, conducting a really good offense is actually quite difficult. Um, it's not impossible, but it, it actually is, is pretty difficult. And then the third is to, you know, people on the technical side say that and they go, oh, well, that of course means we, we need to spend more, more on sure, offense. Um, when, you know, guess what? In the IR theory, and oh, by the way, on the cyber side, that doesn't lead you to necessarily spending a lot more on um, offense. You know, one of the things we found in the book is that, you know, roughly we're spending three times as much on offensive cyber research as we are on defense, which may not make sense. Um, you know, when you're in a glass house, do you want to be spending <laughs> three to one on sharper stones? Even if you're in a dyadic relationship, that's not all that smart. If you're in with these, these all these other act actors out there, m even worse, but this plays too on the business side. You know, this is the very basis of the um, hack back industry that's, you know, getting a lot of money from venture capitalists, which, you know, again, you know, it's this it's this idea of someone attacks me, if I'll get him back, fine, if there's one guy going after you, 
But, you know, if there's 30, 100, 100,000, all you're doing then is just chasing people around. You're, you know, the only person that can benefit from being a full-time vigilante was Charles Bronson. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, you were... Oh, just to say, and, and, you know, you end up basically, from the hackback mentality, you end up going after the kid who's running a port scanner who's just running something on his machine to see if he can take down your website uh, because that's the one that you can notice. Or Aaron uh, Schwartz who steals a bunch of academic articles or, and has the government going after him, like yes, Al Capone or something. And, 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 and well, that's... Different issues. That opens up, which, which is actually very related to cybersecurity uh, in as much as the challenge... Uh, from a research perspective, is how do you keep uh, a, a talent pool? How do you say we need generation of students and research young researchers who are interested in security? The way you get interested in security is you break things, uh, and we need a way of saying one: it's important to have a certain openness in a space of play because that's how you're going to get the people that we need to actually defend stuff five years later when they realize that they need a job. Well, it's also just like uh, I had a conversation with someone recently that said that some of the best infantry soldiers usually come from rural areas, usually grow up with firearms hunting. See, uh, see I, I have a buddy who's infantry, and he says they come from Cleveland. And his argument is that... <laughs> Something the best come from Cleveland? <laughs> the, the, the best infantry come from Cleveland because his argument is that uh, they've been set up for a lifetime of hardship and disappointment <laughs> by Cleveland sports teams. And they have pent-up anger that they want to take out on someone. He's obviously from Cleveland, so therefore this is... Well, I, I like that hypothesis. <laughs> it certainly is a sad sports town lately, especially. But um, let's talk about what we're drinking real quick. Max, what do you, what do you got? Uh, I ordered the pseudonym. It seemed appropriate for our discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's in it? Uh, bourbon, and I can't tell you, it's a state secret. No, nope. good answer. <laughs> Saint Germain. I have the, uh, the Pilsner Urquell beer, so it's kind of, you know, balancing between, um, I, I, I can, you know, unlike you gentlemanly drinkers, I'm having a beer. On the other hand... Man of the people. Yeah. On the, <laughs> I gotta say, though, on the other hand, we're in this elite place, and so the, the only Pilsner they could have was, you know, not the not Budweiser, but the original inspiration for Budweiser. Well, it's the original Pilsner. Yes. I, I studied in Prague years and years ago, and that Pilsner's the first beer that was golden and clear yeah. uh, ever made. So, and, you know, yeah. like the book, I'm, I'm trying to do a balancing act in my drink. <laughs> Alan? Uh, and I went for the the Jefferson Bourbon, uh, which is uh, is is powerful, but it's not uh, it's not coming out too strong. I haven't had that. Well, tell me about it. Uh, so it's it's it is it is one of those borderline bourbons that it is perfectly friendly. Uh, it's not trying to be cask strength. It's not trying to be super sweet or super spicy. Uh, but it still is undeniably a bourbon, unlike some of the other uh, sort of more sort of mid range bourbons that are trying to sort of dull themselves down into generic whiskey. You have a yeah. blog on this. this is... uh, you know, I'm still looking for a replacement for the Elijah Craig 18. We are we are looking for a regular... Uh, I offered it to Jared Brackman, and he, he didn't follow up, but uh, we are looking for a regular whiskey scotch bourbon columnist or uh, rock, so maybe we'll, we can we'll, talk we'll, later. We'll talk. Because, uh, <laughs> it's, everyone needs a hobby. Yeah. So now that we've talked about drink, we should talk about cats. And the thing that made me laugh the most about your book, and I'm just going to go to the page. We'll get back to serious stuff in a minute. But this this, that's a good. So there's another. Your you what what you enjoyed the most because I've got my favorite line. <laughs> you've got probably one of yours. Well, um, let, let, we should we should go through that. But we should we should go through that. But uh, so you talk. Well, you, cats is a theme throughout the book. It's in the intro. It's throughout. Cats are integral. Cute cat pictures are integral. And so you write, for example, the dominance that cute cats. You talk about the. Um, you talk about the way the internet is changing in, in, in the concluding chapter, and you talk about dominance that cute cats have had over online videos may be ending. Google researchers have noticed an explosion of cute goat and cute panda bear videos that have risen in parallel with the greater number of users coming online in sub-Saharan Africa and China, breaking the cat's monopoly over internet cuteness. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Goats? I, I think it says it all, um, but it does hit, you know... The data shows that, uh, you know, while we think cats are both adorable and hilarious when they play keyboards, that humor doesn't translate across all cultures. <laughs> and that, um, you know, essentially out of China, panda videos are uh, ones that are, that are beloved. In Africa, it's the goat um, uh, style of humor. 
And uh, you know, look, I'm not making it. This is the data, uh, but it's a good illustration to the the bigger point um, is that the internet, in terms of the user base, is changing. You know, it had been this um, quintessentially American, you know, mainly kind of Northern California hippie scientist creation, and now um, it's it's globalizing. Uh, that's important both in terms of the content, but it's also important in terms of uh, some of the big debates that loom over the governance of the internet and and what kind of values and structures it will hold. And I think this is you know to connect cute cat videos and pandas to the Snowden um, effect. That's been one of the things that you know in the book we explore what looms in terms of international governance and some of the questions around the ITU. And this is a big year ahead for that. The problem of the Snowden um, revelations... Not the that, cat problem revelations. Not the cat problem, is that it's uh, rocked the sort of American freedom agenda back on its heels. And um, we may... Uh, we The coalition that had been built... Uh, to the international coalition that had been built to you know sort of fight for internet freedom and to keep the the structure of it roughly the same um, maybe irreparably harmed by it and we'll see in the next couple of years ahead so you notice how I, I, I've segued from <laughs> cats to a something nice substantive job. and to sketch some background around around this internet governance question uh, we detail in the book this this phenomenon the, the one of the wonderful things about the internet is no one is in charge uh, and there are a number of organizations that manage particular aspects, uh, but the the dominant body that really sort of helps manage scarce resources is something called ICANN, the Internet uh, Corporation for Assigning Names and Numbers. And they basically say, all right, is there a dot .com and why isn't there a dot .sex? Uh, and and so they're responsible. Well, which is which is which is tied in litigation uh, and will be free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so and the, what's interesting about this organization is it works fairly well, and it's astoundingly unrepresentative and undemocratic from a global perspective. And a number of people have said, listen, we care about the process. So we need to have global representation, move it to a UN-style approach. And the problem that many in the West have is, listen, if, it's a, if we bring in uh, one country, one vote, a la UN, uh, there are enough countries out there that are interested in changing the structure of the UN, or structure of the Internet, rather, to uh, really empower governments to, to inject state control over the Internet. Yeah, what do you guys think about this Eric Schmidt theory that countries like China and India will look for more internet sovereignty and that that'll eventually lead to fracturing the web into disparate pieces. So the, the buzzword there is balkanization. Thank you. Uh, and, and fun word. Well, and it's it's fun because I just came back from a meeting at OECD and they're not allowed to use the word balkanization because really? it turns out in an international <laughs> context, people from the Balkans don't like that very much. Uh, the um, But the, the Broader challenge is that, okay, there are a bunch of countries that are really interested in, for a variety of reasons, having greater control. And for some of them, it's just the things that they think are bad are different than whatever. So we, we all agree that child pornography is bad, so, so there are international efforts to take that out of the Internet. Most of us don't mind jokes at the expense of the king of Thailand. Uh, and so we're happy at an Internet that allows... Uh, them to be expressed. Uh, the Thai, of course, disagree. So the, the question is, where do we allow state control? And in the status quo, basically state control is a function of the legitimate monopoly on the use of force. Right. So Google doesn't allow videos on YouTube that mock the king of Thailand to be shown in Thailand, because if they did, uh, Thai... Uh, Thai Googlers would be thrown in jail. Uh, and the challenge is, do we want to sort of increase that model where every country has an internet that follows their own model? Uh, it's the, the, those of us in the West, especially in America, say no, we want a global internet because it's, it amounts to a, a, a Western li liberal hegemony. Uh, there are those who want to push back precisely for the same reason, uh, with, you know, and people have various forecasts about whether that will make things truly terrible 
or will actually empower local innovation. And one of the, the things that matters in terms of the year ahead is that this debate will crystallize, uh, particularly at the ITU. And, and what we explore in the book is that you know this is a debate that actually has a long history. And the ITU goes back to the you know the first telegraph. Um, and, and we tell the secret of uh, that Morse code really isn't Morse code. Um, uh, but what's playing out and, and coming this fall is really interesting is that you'll see these coalitions sort of uh, you know argue over what Alan was just getting at. You know, do should states be able to dominate it and particularly um, balkanize it in a way that will keep you from being able to search out the information that you want? The interesting is some states. They're going to take this position firmly. I mean, Russia already has a system where you know eighty-two thousand websites have been blacklisted. Yeah. You know, you just can't get to it. Then you have these, you know, frankly, swing states. If we're making kind of an electoral politics parallel, Brazil was a key swing state. India is another key swing state. The concern of um, the NSA Snowden affair is we the Brazilians we we're maybe already we're going to lose them, but we've definitely lost them. India is an interesting case because you've got this disconnect between what the Indian government mm -hmm. thinks is um, should be done versus the Indian tech sector. And right. so one of the things that the United States, you know, now let's talk strategy that we've got to be able to do is first we've got to actually have a strategy. Okay, um, don't have that, and it's got to be one that that matches security with the economic side. And if you can see the, the imbalance um, in the White House, you've got roughly 12 people in the national security staff, the old NSC, working cybersecurity issues. On the National um, Economic Council, you've got one person doing internet issues. And they also, by the way, have um, the portfolio for things like patents. Um, so we've got that imbalance. We need a strategy. We've also got to have a voice. But the other part is to mobilize other elements, of the, of, including the private sector. One of the key things that we need the U.S. private sector to do is actually reach out to their partners and competitors in these other nations so that you're getting Bangalore calling up New Delhi saying, why are you negotiating this this way? You may think this is the right political thing, but it's bad for us business-wise if it balkanizes that way. So I'm going to play devil's advocate, and it's going to drive you guys crazy, and you can tell me why I'm wrong. But about well, that's actually something we really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up on that. Um, so about a year and a half ago, when India started introducing all of these crazy restrictions on social media, like Facebook, and these really impossible-to-meet standards in terms of self-censorship, I started looking into it, and the rules themselves are nuts. On their face, they're crazy. But I started trying to understand, okay, why are they doing this? And it was really interesting. I went back to Assam State, which is in the northeast of India, and it has a long history of um, ethnic rioting, of one group fighting against another. And there's also a more recent history with text messaging and social media of rumors sparking very deadly riots that create thousands of refugees. I mean, it's really like huh. a pretty significant tinderbox. And, you know, somebody explained to me one of the reasons they're trying to crack down is they don't hate free speech. You know, it's India, they're a democracy. But there are so many cases of one false text message, you know, with a doctored photo of a Muslim killing a Hindu or something like that, causing dozens of deaths that even though they don't like censorship, it's kind of a necessary evil. And that seems to kind of lead into the balkanization effect. Well, that, that, that's, that? that's the debate over, you know, um, free speech online. And what you've done is give a really good illustration of how this is not just a matter between authoritarian states and democracies, mm -hmm. but even among democracies, there's very different views on it. So you use the Indian example. The one we use in the book is... Um, the U.S. and, and uh, EU would seem to be quite aligned on cybercrime, except you know there's certain things that if you do in France, uh, you know, what is it Nazi, like? Uh, if you if you sell Nazi paraphernalia, yeah, Nazi, yes, so, so, um, yeah, yeah, so yeah, in Germany, Nazi, you know that's yeah. a crime versus yeah. in the U.S. it's free speech, um, and so you know you've you've got these disputes, and so the idea is you know the, we talk about this as if it's you know the phrase global commons, mm -hmm. but 
you know, the underlying lesson of the book is that it's all about the people. It's all, and, and, and we're different. And, and, um, we're all the times person of time magazine person of the year in 2006. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the other part of it, the worry though, is for me is when those, you know, maybe sensible codes are abused in some way when there's something on the book that everyone agrees is bad but we say oh well we'll only use it in the worst occasions um you know that gives you a, a clear opportunity for abuse when you've got the wrong people in power i you know maybe this is uh, it, it's i remember this debate in the virginia governor race where there were some pretty zany laws that had been um uh, proposed and he said, "Oh, but but don't worry. I'll only use those against the really really bad people." Like, oh, okay. Well, if you said you'd only use it, I mean, that's that's the concern when it comes to some of these codes that are there. Yeah. And yeah. so so what you talk about is the risks of free expression in a pluralistic society with tension. And the flip side is what are the risks of a censorship regime in a pluralistic society when individuals feel that they can no if, if they don't have access to open information mm. then they can no longer trust anything and mm. it's pretty easy to find examples from beyond the Iron Curtain yes. uh, where people just learned how to do really a, a rabbinic or almost like a postmodern deconstructed reading <laughs> of, of the official reports to try to learn any information uh, and you don't trust the state and you don't trust yeah. any media uh, which is ultimately going to be a lot more destructive so that would be the broader question but this is this is not a cyber question right the qu challenge is fitting this into the proper agenda uh, of, of how you understand your operation of the state and I think one of the points we try to flesh out in the book is is cyber has to be a component of established policy, not seen as this unique thing that you treat differently. And, and this actually connects back to one of your prior questions in terms of a Cold War parallel. One of the lessons of uh, the Cold War when it came to arms control talks was um, even if you didn't agree, mm -hmm. there was still value in meeting to start to discuss and come to Concord on the terms. Okay. So the U.S. and the Soviets... Um, may not have been willing to horse trade on um, ballistic missiles or cruise missiles, but it was valuable for them to start to agree to the meaning of what they meant when they said cruise missile. Well, guess what? When it comes to cyber, it's even more difficult. Um, and, and your example is a great illustration of how uh, the, the, the term information um, attack. That in the U.S., is it's our fear of um, the Wild West. It's the fear of this unregulated space, attacks and crimes happening anywhere, in particular going after infrastructure, physical harm. When you speak to a Chinese official, information attack is their fear of the Wild West. The Wild West in terms of our values and spreading information that um, and rumors that are harmful to social stability and the survival of the regime. So you'll see people, you know, they'll be nodding their heads in agreement, we must stop information attacks, and they both mean diametrically mm -hmm. the opposite thing. Yeah. Well, and the irony, too, is that, you know, the Chinese defense, whenever we complain about hacking, is, well, we're the biggest victims of hacking of all. And in a lot of ways, it's a dodge, but it's also true, yeah. right? So, I mean, the hacking within China is really severe. I mean, if you want to talk about the Wild West, of just companies openly, state institutions openly hiring these companies to hack one another, you know... Within the Chinese system. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. And so, Chinese so, officials uh, hacking one another. And this is perhaps one of the least understood aspects mm -hmm. for the American audience. Right. First time I heard The Chinese are petrified. Uh, just a, from you know the, the the best example is Microsoft Windows Vista. They announced that they were yes. Well, that's a punchline in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. Not yet. Vista's not the best example. Uh, so so, uh, but Microsoft made a decision that they were going to provide security updates uh, to uh, all versions, whether or not they were legally purchased, and they had the ability to detect whether or not it was a legally purchased version. Uh, so, but what they did is they said, if it's an illegal version, we're going to change, I can't remember if it was the screensaver or the background of the desktop. Uh, I think it was the background of the, yeah, Peter, thank you. Um, 
background of, of the desktop. So just saying, by the way, you know, we, we updated your computer and we encourage you to buy a legal copy and based on your keyboard setting, here's your local vendor. Um, so that popped up on, you know, a whole bunch of random basements around the world, uh, including some inside the Ministry of Information in the Republic <laughs> of China. Sure. Uh, so one, that just means, you know, this is a... This is a it's Place where well, well, they thought where, they were under a cyber attack. They did because oh. try to convince try convincing them that that wasn't a concerted American effort to sort of say, listen, we know that you have no defense. Uh, that that as a, just from a pure technical sophistication, the elites on an offensive model, excellent. But as a country, just a, from a f sheer function of its development scale. Yeah. Old computers, uh, people spend their money on hardware, they buy them once, and no one spends money on support. That's a problem in schools in America, that's a problem around the world. Uh, and so the, the real risk is to say, oh, you know, there are insecure computers everywhere, and fortunately, you know, America is as secure as it has ever been. We're the best, we're the best we've ever been. Maybe ever will be. Actually. And we're still yeah, a house sure. of cards. And we're still, exactly. Right. But the, the data point there that's interesting is um, China is the world's second largest market for hardware and the eighth largest for software. And the contributing <laughs> factors is, you know, you lay out as both, as Alan was saying, there's just basically what spe people spend on when they have a limited budget. And the other is they're the victim of their own, you know, sort of campaign of, of, of depending on piracy and IP theft, and so it's created these, these vulnerabilities in the system for them. Um, but, you know, we need to be very clear here when we're kind of pointing fingers at them, mm -hmm. you know, we also need to take a good long look in the mirror. So, you know, um, uh, one, uh, 20 out of the top 50 crime spewing ISPs in the world um, are American. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if there were any winners out of the Snowden revelations, it was China, um, because you know, one, they they uh, get to pass him off like a hot potato to Russia, but also uh, there's all of these disclosures of activities, um, including, for example, you know, hacking uh, their leading university. So all the kind of things that that we sort of poopod them, you know, you only do kind of political stuff. Don't go after other sort of well. Sorry, we were doing it too. There's there's two things I want to. There's three things I want to end with. One, uh, Thomas Ridd's a good friend of mine. He at Kings, where I'm doing my doctorate. He's a he's a member of faculty there. Uh, two of his big arguments, we've covered one of them, the attribution problem. And he sort of takes it in different directions. It's hard to respond when you don't know who's attacking you. And the other uh, is so the, the term cyber war. His book is called Cyber War Will Not Take Place. He argues that because there's no violence in it, we, we shouldn't call it war. I'd just like to get your reaction I'll, to I'll let Peter take the cyber war question. On the attribution approach, um, in theory, the attribution problem is huge. In practice, the number of instances where someone wants to do something to you without taking credit is fairly small. And the number of people who can actually plan a sophisticated operation without exposing themselves to very sophisticated intelligence operations, that is to having perfect operational security, uh, is even smaller. And so I, I, I'm not going to say that it's never going to be an issue. But one thing we talk about in the book is is that it's you've got to understand it complex uh, from a more complex perspective. Moreover, everyone assumes that the attribution problem means that you have to have instantly know what happened and who hit you. And in fact, you know, we, we, we function perfectly well as a society with a long criminal justice system. It's a long delay to figure out who done it. Uh, and moreover, there's absolutely no reason that a, a stated you know. For example, Chinese uh, nuclear deterrence is based on the idea that, you know, we may not hit you back immediately, but we're going to hit you back. And similarly, uh, there's no reason why that can't be a global deterrence strategy. So, we uh, actually hosted Thomas for his, his U.S. book launch. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, his book is, is out by the same press. So I'm not gonna, you know, knock it. I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not trying to. But, but, but what I would say, where I come down on this is that 
I would agree with his argument if the title of his book wasn't There Will Be No Cyber War, but rather There Has Been No Cyber War by the academic definition of it. <laughs> that is, that's it's a, um, it's a great title. Um, uh, so, you know, it's a book that's, um, uh, he's exactly right, and we explore this in our book of how the term cyber war. And I listened to the event of Brookings, the, the back and forth thing. It was yeah. interesting. So, you know, the, the term cyber war has been abused. You know, we talk about the, uh, the magazine cover that, you know, uses cyber war but talks about credit card fraud. Or, and then in, in Thomas's book, he talks about how, you know, most of what's happened has been um, information theft, espionage. Uh, but where, you know, where I, I diverge is, is two things. So one, um, while that's been the nature in the past, that's not where it is now and where it's headed in the future. And particularly as we explore in the book, the use of computer network operations, which is the military terminology. Um, and that's the integration of this into actual military use. And um, that's both in enhancing your ongoing military operations and also cyber weapons. That is, that's the game change of a Stuxnet in terms of causing physical change in the world. Uh, that's where we've really entered a new frontier. Um, so while his book was looking backwards, that's not always going to be the case. The second is complete agreement with him in terms of kind of the classic definition of war. But the reality is the term war um, you know, we, we can maybe we more correctly call it conflict, but the reality is that um, contestation, conflict, linked to politics, guess what? That's what's happening in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, whether yes, there's there's also no such thing as a trade war, but that's a that's a real phenomenon in the world. Oh, by the way, you know. Um, Korea wasn't a war, it was a police action, if you ask Truman. I mean, at a certain point, you can dance around the terminology, but at the end of the day, you know, um, it's, you know, I, I, we know it when we see it, and okay. we're entering that space here. Well, and then to, to close, I guess I want to hear, uh, I want to hear you guys talk about your the funniest lines, most amusing lines you think in the book. What do you think I'll, I'll let you go first. Gosh, the, the most amusing line is, is tricky. Most of those, uh, I, Working with Peter has been a great use in learning how to write more flippantly. Uh, I, I liked uh, the the example of the evil bit, uh, which is the proposal. So the IETF does Internet Engineering Standards, which are some of the driest, bit, boring stuff. Sorry, yes, thank you. Uh, I didn't hear bitch. Yes, the, <laughs> I uh, so so the, the Internet Engineering Task Force is one of the driest, most technical bodies in the world. Uh, but every year they release an April Fool's technical document, which, if you're a computer scientist, is a hoot. Uh, but they proposed, uh, there's a guy named Steve Bellavin, who proposed the idea of an evil bit, which is to say a packet, which is the, the way that data flows around the Internet, should just have a, a little flag that says, am I an evil packet or not? Uh, and that will solve our security. Uh, and if that doesn't work, then I suppose we'll have to invent a firewall, which, which Steve Bellavin did. Uh, but uh, I, I, I like that example. Mine is, uh, there's been this discourse out there, and it's happened both in a number of books, uh, as well as the policy side where they say, you know, goodness, the, the Internet's so insecure, we should just build a new, more, ins a new, more secure Internet. Um, let's just build a new Internet. And um, the line we have about that is that um, it's crazy? No, no, it's, <laughs> it's uh, building the idea of building a new internet makes as much sense as rebooting Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> 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 yeah. and Max, just as someone that's been covering these issues, written a few, I think, very insightful articles actually on the subject, I'd love to hear your reaction on how sort of uh, coverage has changed and perception in Washington has changed on the issue over the last few years. So I think there's one anecdote that for me really drives home kind of how we look at cybersecurity, which was right before the Sunnyland Summit between Obama and Xi Jinping in California, which is I think in June, July, somewhere around there. All of these stories about Chinese cyber attacks, cyber espionage, whatever you want to call it, 
Um, and they look really serious, right? I mean, stealing military secrets, um, many millions of dollars worth of military technology. Um, and I think a lot of us were trying to figure out how serious is this? How big of a deal is this? And right before the summit, the White House announced in an on-background briefing, we are um, going to raise the issue with Xi, but we are compartmentalizing it, which means that we're not going to let it touch anything else. And even though this one area, we're expressing a lot of unhappiness and you know we're very upset about it, um, we don't want that to define the relationship. And I think what that signaled, to me anyway, is that that's going to be an enduring feature of not just the U.S.-China relationship, but of international relations writ large for possibly a very long time, but that it's not going to define those relationships. Mm -hmm. no, that's good. And then this has been a great, great session. I, I just want to point out there, there are four men in the room. Three of them have beards. One of them is not <laughs> Peter Singer. And so I want to issue a War on the Rocks challenge. I can tell you, you could grow a beard. I most uh, definitely could. So let's say, well, you should grow one. I mean, no, Movember's over, but why not grow a beard? I'm waiting for the uh, baseball season to start again. Okay. All right, good answer. Thanks for joining us, guys. And thanks for listening, everybody.